Welcome to Myth versus Craft. I met Phil Hurley a little over a year ago after a show by the South Austin Moonlighters. His bandmate Chris Beale was on episode two of the show, but the night I met Phil was the first night I'd seen the Moonlighters play live, and I've been a huge fan ever since. The entire band was incredible, and Phil's singing and playing were exceptional. When we spoke after the show, I realized that he would make a great guest, and 15 months later, we finally met to talk about his career, about songwriting, guitars, and life as a professional musician. Let's start by listening to some of his music. The first song is from Stonehoney's record, The Cedar Creek Sessions, and the other two songs are from the album Burn and Shine by the South Austin Moonlighters. I also highly recommend the Moonlighters' latest album, Ghost of a Small Town. so much for joining me. It is my distinct pleasure, my friend. We've been trying to do this for a while, and, and we're finally doing it, so I'm so happy that you're visiting. You grew up in upstate New York. I did. Near the border with Canada. I looked it up. Yep, yep. Potsdam, New York. Fortunately, growing up in that town, there was a ton of music. 
it was a, a college town, still is a college town. But when I was young, they would let these, uh, these grand old fraternity houses have massive beer blasts, they were called. And it would be, you know, 20 kegs for 50 cents. And the students would come into these kind of fenced off yards and they'd have music all day long. And as little kids, we were drawn to the sound. So we weren't allowed in, but we would hang on the fences <laughs> listening to bands. And it was the, you know, heyday of the seventies with lab series amplifiers and, you know, concert toms. But there was a lot of music. I mean, growing up in Potsdam, when I was little, there were, there were 12 to 15 music venues uh, that all had live music. And now there's really sadly to say like none. I mean, it's really hard to, uh, the, it's just kind of faded away, but that there was so much to see. And also I got to give massive credit to the guys who owned the local music store, which was called Northern music. They have continuously the longest standing cover band of upstate New York. They're called <laughs> double axle and they started in 1970 and they're still playing. Oh wow. And those guys were just so good to us kids. They took us in, they realized that we were, they knew our parents. Uh, and so if we needed to borrow a microphone, a cable, an amplifier, whatever it was, their answer was yes. They knew that they knew that we were going to get they were going to get it back and they also knew they were building customers. And the fun part there is that those guys are still my friends and we've ended up making records together and stuff, which is they really grew a community of musicians up there. A third of the population mm -hmm. is college students when yeah. the university's in, in session. Yep. So I was wondering if the college scene was a big part of it, and it was. It was, and I, and I think, you know, in retrospect, I think part of um, the popularity of that college uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, it was very close to the border. Right, um, right. And right. so it also drew, it drew like a real hippie element up there. And, uh, and again, I think that that's kind of unfortunately faded away. The town's really shrinking. But, you know, um, growing up, my father was the, the dean of students at the university up there, and oh, wow. the keyboard player in my band's uh, father was the president. The guitar <laughs> player was a, a philosophy professor. Our drummer was a sculptor professor. We were all uh, faculty kids. And so until the age of 13 or 14, there was enough because we had access to there was sports teams, there was dance, there was music, there was art. You know, a liberal arts school, there was, it wasn't necessarily world class, but there was plenty of it there to see. So there was enough culture in a pretty cultural, culturally background part of the world. My little town was like an exception to the rule up there. Yeah. And we, because we were faculty kids, we had access to all that, which, you know, was, it gave us a good groundwork of education and culture and you got started young i read that you started playing at age eight and you were getting paid to do it by 14 yeah 13 probably yeah but yeah uh you know my older brother uh bless his heart he's five years older than i am and i know that he did not want his eight-year-old brother <laughs> hanging around but once he started getting into playing in bands i was drawn to it and i could sing in tune and I was kind of unafraid. So, yeah, I think our first band was called Sniper. <laughs> and uh, and we did, you know, Cat Scratch Fever and Hot Blooded and Goofy Tunes. But uh, but I, I remember we did a show, like, from my grade school when I was in fifth grade. And, and I knew I could just see the looks on the kids' faces that I had just grown a ring. You know, it's like I was, you know, it separated me. And that was, that was a joyful thing because I was always in bands and all throughout high school. And I know a lot of people, high school is a really torturous time for them. But... I always had that special thing that right. made it, me realize, like, you can't touch me. You can make fun of me. Yeah, I've got long hair. Yeah, I'm wearing goofy clothes, whatever it is. But I've got a life that you don't know about. And it, it always emboldened me, you know. 
was music your your I mean it was your main interest but did you did you have anything else that that you teased with sports or any other activities or was it all music yeah no I, I played sports um I got in trouble I was good at sports actually I, I got in trouble because I had long hair the coaches didn't like me because I was you know I, I wasn't really doing drugs or anything stupid but I wanted to look like a rocker you know so yeah you I, just I, made I, me think of dazed and confused it was totally like yeah. kind of like that you know um yeah I remember like I had been the captain of the JV soccer team and when I went out for varsity the the coach I remember him riding me hard because I had long hair I was like dude look at look at Europe I mean like these guys all have long hair like who cares it's can you play the sport but that drove me away so well I got a credit not only my brother who I played with but also my best friend going out through high school was a guy named Jason Sutter who is now one of the best drummers in the whole wide world he plays with he's out right now with Dee Snyder from uh Twisted, Twisted sister. sister, but he's and he's just about to do a run with Cher. But since then, he uh, he was with Marilyn Manson, and he played with Chris Cornell, and he played with Smash Mouth, and he's he's done. He's one of the guys. But we started playing together when we were nine, and we didn't stop playing together until we graduated from high school together. And uh, and we and having him as my best running mate, we started working professionally with guys in their twenties and thirties when we were fifteen or sixteen, and we we were making money, and you know, we were out playing three nights a week playing crappy covers, you know, but, you know, making in 1985 or whatever, making 50 bucks a night, you know? Uh, so, and I'm really lucky that I'm the youngest kid and my parents were, you know, they were concerned, but their, their deal was if you keep your grades up and I always did well in school, as long as you get up and go to school and keep your grades up, we'll let you do this. And that bargain worked out. Was it after high school that you moved to Boston? Two days after high school. Oh, yeah. wow. I had already, in my senior year, we started that band, Gigolo Ants. And all the guys in Gigolo Ants were five years my senior. So they were all finishing their last year of college when I was finishing my last year of high school. And that was just a grand experiment. Um, somehow, my brother Steve and Dave Gibbs, the other guitar player, got a shift on the local college radio station. Not even at the college they went to, at the Technical <laughs> University of Clarkson. And we used that mercilessly to create our own buzz around our own band so we had posters up around town that just said gigolo ants somewhere soon <laughs> before we even had a drummer you know so it really worked in a town that only really had cover bands our first gig we came out when we played 15 original songs and and there had never really been anything like it and people came and they were excited so you know we back then it was cassette tapes we made our own cassette tapes and we sold out of our first you know few pressings of our cassette tape and Dave Gibbs had lived briefly in Boston, and he had seen a real music community. And he was bringing back these records by exotic bands like Dump Truck and Big Dipper and O Positive and these bands that were from Boston but that were getting national recognition. And I think we saw, strangely, that it was more fertile soil and more doable than New York City, though they're about equidistance from Potsdam. New York's really far away from Potsdam. So, yeah, I, they waited for me for about a month after they had finished college to finish high school. And we loaded up our crappy $600 van and, uh, and just drove to Boston and dug in. What was that like, moving to a much bigger pond? Oh, it was mind-blowing. It was painful because, uh, I mean, I didn't have any money. I, it was definitely a, a good period where I lived on literally a dollar a day. I found a local supermarket that sold three crappy frozen burritos for a buck. <laughs> and I, I'd have like one for breakfast and one for lunch <laughs> and one for dinner. And sometimes I splurge and just eat all three. But we got incredibly lucky that uh, really within the first – Six months of living there, we went down and played a show in New York City, and we opened for Soul Asylum. Oh, wow. And we got a record deal. It was that strangely easy, or so it seemed, back in the day. And so by the following, you know, that was we moved in the summer of 87. 
Um, and it was, it was hot, sweaty, urban, you know, I was, I grew up swimming, you know, and, and getting enjoy, enjoy summer. Boston was stinky and crowded and, and there was no place to swim. But, uh, by that following spring of 88, 88, we were making our debut record and you know, we got to make it in Hoboken, New Jersey. What was that experience like? Oh, it was, I mean, we were on the top of the world because I mean, there was a club in that era called Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey. And, and Hoboken hadn't really become what it is now. Hoboken is very yuppified now. But back then, it was definitely this kind of cool Italian village. It was famous because Sinatra was from there and baseball was invented there. But Maxwell's was this club that would get acts that were way too big to be playing this little teeny club. But because it was just across the river from New York, they'd get like people could play the limelight or the, you know, I don't know, I can't remember the names of the clubs back then, but big clubs in New York, but they'd come across and play. So I saw, I saw the Pixies in this room. I saw the Meat Puppets in this room. I saw really special groups. And I wasn't even old enough to be drinking, but the guy who owned our record label owned the venue <laughs> so we could eat and drink and go to all the shows for free. And so it definitely like our feet weren't really touching the ground there for a while. And and when we got our very first record, which was truly a vinyl record, I was, I was like, well, that's it. We're rock stars now, you know? And of course it was far from the truth. <laughs> <laughs> what took you to Seattle? Seattle happened, um, it happened through Gigolo-ass experiences. We, we toured, you know, we were, we were a band for a long time and we toured a ton. And, uh, we, I remember being pretty smitten, particularly with a band called the Posies who were from Seattle. And on our first trip out there, a still dear friend of mine, who was the drummer for the Posies named Mike Musburger showed us around, gave us kind of a walking tour. And I just remember thinking, man, this is, and this was actually, you know, probably by Seattle terms, a little late in the game. I think probably the grunge ship. What year was it? Well, 94, 93, 94. So I mean, it was still happening by the time I moved there. The you know the wave had kind of crested and crashed. I moved there in '96. There was that was multifaceted. It was it was time to move on from Gigolo Ants. Just as far as I, I was never going to grow up. You know I was always going to be the little kid in that band, and uh, I was starting to flex my muscles musically. And there wasn't room for that because those guys. It was already very established that those guys were the guys were going to run the band. So if I was going to have my next step musically, I was going to have to venture out. And it came with growing pains, of course. And as I've learned from all the different moves that I've done, you have to start all the way at the bottom of the food chain again, you know, and, and it, it's humbling. It's definitely, it makes you, you know, there's no, uh, uh, and every town has its own, you know, local heroes and you got to pay homage to all the different guys and earn your way back up and again. But I loved living in Seattle. It was a, it was a great, great experience. What took you to Amsterdam? Well, like Seattle, there was a girl. When I, I moved to Seattle and immediately got the job playing guitar for Tracy Bonham, who was Boston-based, yeah. um, much to the chagrin of my old band, Jiggle Mass, they were not pleased with that. And the Tracy thing just exploded. I mean, I was supposed to be on the ro- road for three weeks and ended up being, we were off about a year and a half straight. It was amazing to see the, the power of MTV back then because we were literally playing to empty houses. And the week she got added to MTV, there was a thousand people. You know, and like she started selling 25,000 copies a week, uh, which just really doesn't happen anymore. And uh, so it was a pretty grand ride. That was the first time getting to go on tour buses. And really, I had done some international travel, but I was in uh, the north of Holland uh, in a town called Groningen. Groningen, (laughs) And uh, I stepped on a cute girl's foot and she turned around and smiled at me and it was all over. So I (laughs) I had a long distance love affair with a Dutch girl that lasted by post for a few years until she finally came over and we went, we camped our way up and down the coast and we ended up 
being married in Seattle. And we lived in Seattle um, for a few years. And then unfortunately, two weeks after we got married was 9-11. And so the immigration thing was, was kind of a hot mess. And like they treated this beautiful little girl like she was an Al-Qaeda supercell member, you know. And so we had an opportunity to go. Her old apartment in like the most beautiful part of Amsterdam was up for lease again. And one of my sisters uh, is still married to a German man. And I remember her saying that she credited part of the success of their marriage to that they'd lived in each other's cultures. And I thought, well, hey, you know, I love that city. I'm in love with this girl. Let's see, you know. And so I moved really believing I was going to live there for the rest of my life. It was the toughest and most challenging move I've ever done. And nine months into it or something, she told me she had left me for my best friend <laughs> by email while I was in Los Angeles. Uh, I've never seen her again. So like suddenly now I was living in Los Angeles. All my stuff was still in Holland. I've never seen her again. I luckily I got most of my stuff back, but it was like, I didn't, I, I, if I you know had had my choice, I would have never lived in the city of Los Angeles, but there I was. And, uh, you know, that's a lot, a lot of years later and you know, plenty of good songs out of that experience, wow. as you can imagine. But uh, yeah, that was, that was a little bit of a, having a, the rug pulled out from any of your feet. So you answered my next question, yeah. what took you to LA? Yeah, well, that was it. And you ended up here in Austin. What brought you here? I got lucky when I was, the, the, the man who changed LA for me, and you all should look this guy up, Fred Wallachy. He owned a shop called Westwood Music. It had been his father's shop before him, and uh, he kind of came into owning the store just as the 60s and rock and roll were starting to happen. So his first clients, it was next to a a legendary folk club, were Roger McGuinn and David Crosby. Wow. And these were the folks who still came in. It was Chris Hillman from The Birds. It was Joni Mitchell. It was Jackson Brown. It was Richard Thompson. It was Stephen Stills. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, and this was also because it's kind of like Beverly Hills, Brentwood area. It was the local music store where... Nastasia Kinski would come to buy strings for her daughter or like, you know, I mean, it was, it was amazing. The folk, and, and the very first day I met Fred, I was broken. I was in a million pieces and he sat down and we talked for hours about Graham Parsons and Clarence White and music that I loved. And the last thing he said to me that day was, what do you need? And I said, I need a job. He said, Friday. And so I started at this incredible music store and uh and it was it was a game changer because suddenly I had stability and family and people who cared about me again and I was working one day and these two dudes came in one guy was looking to buy an inexpensive Martin and I had just the right thing so I put this guitar in his hands he totally fell in love with it fish on the line I was like but man have you ever played these McPherson acoustics which are you know six thousand bucks or something. <laughs> well he played this one I like that one too and I was like, well, have you tried these special Schertler acoustic amplifiers? Well, we like that too. So he ended up buying them all, which was like a big purchase. And I think it, you know, it, was, it was, as far as being a novice salesman, this was my red letter day, you know. But the guys were cool. And they heard me play guitar. And they're like, dude, what are you doing this weekend? And I was like, nothing. Like, well, come play guitar with us. It ended up being Sean Davis and Nick Randolph, who I formed a band called Stone Honey with. Yeah. And there was just something about that band, especially when the bass player, Dave Fantasy, came in. When we started singing together, especially working at that shop and being so surrounded with that, like, Laurel Canyon kind of sound that I was enamored with, it was that. Like, Nick had a house up in the hills near the Hollywood sign. We could open up the doors and sing to the Coyotes, and it was like, we sounded like Poco meets the Buffalo Springfield meets the Eagles. And the tunes were there, and the guys were there, and the brotherhood was there. And uh, it was another one of those just kind of embarrassing, uh, like Gigolo asked, uh, 
pulling into New York our very first time and getting a record deal. We were playing a party up in the hills at Nick's house and this like literally cigar smoking, overweight, bleached blonde hair producer guy pulls us outside and is like, I'm going to make you guys stars. And it was just a big name record producer. The guy's name is Rick Wake. And we had to look him up, but he's the second highest selling producer behind Mutt Lang in the history of music. He had done Taylor Dane and he had done all the early, um, oh, I'm blanking on her name. Who's the girl can, who can hit really, really high notes? All I want for Christmas is you, baby. Oh, uh, Mariah Carey? That's it. Yeah, he did all Mariah Carey stuff and also did a lot of Celine Dion. Oh, wow. And so, you know, he had, had a lot of clout, but I, I remember we had this big meeting and we're sitting around and my line to him was like, look, dude, like, first of all, I don't own any of the records that you produced. And we're not that young and we're not that good looking and we can't <laughs> dance. So what do you want with this band? And he had a great answer. He said, man, I've been waiting my whole career to find a band like you guys. All I got to do is put the mics up and you'll do the rest. And so... We made a big, expensive record at the studio where Michael Jackson recorded, and I think he thought he could just bar- barnstorm into Nashville and tell them what to do. And when he met the first little bit of resistance, he just disappeared on us, he wouldn't allow us to put out the record, and wouldn't let us sign with anyone else. So we got stuck in this crap deal. And uh, part of what we were trying to do to, to keep going as a band is we, we did some touring, and we had this just incredible Austin experience. We were heading towards Nashville, but we came through, and played a house concert at some friends' houses, and uh, there was a beautiful red-haired girl there named Polly Parsons, who was Graham Parsons' only daughter. And uh, she fell in love with the band and uh, took us to a party the next day at Eddie Wilson, who owns Threadgill's house. And uh, we played for that community, and they just they just embraced us. And so even though we had kind of a failed attempt at being in Nashville for a while, we knew that if we came back to Austin, there'd be a home. And sure enough, like when we first arrived, uh, they gave us a residency at the North Store and, you know, the managers at both Threadgills would feed us and, you know, give us drinks. And they, they really made us feel like this was where we belonged and uh, ended up signing to Jimmy LaFave's label here, Music Road, for one kind of an ill-fated record. I mean, unfortunately, it seems to me like every group I've ever been in, we've always been 110%. The hardest thing is to find other people who match your enthusiasm and intent. Um, and I, I don't mean to disparage any of the folks we've worked with, but it's never as, as diehard. It's not as life and death for them. You know, they're like, they've got other income sources and they've got other things going on for the bands. It's like, you know, we're, we're putting our lives on the line. And, and unfortunately with stone honey, we just couldn't, uh, we couldn't, make money. Uh, and uh, we had the same idea of what my band, the South Austin Moonlighters are doing now, of kind of working this circuit. And, uh, but for whatever reason, with a good product, we couldn't make it work. So it all kind of whimpered to a sad end. But I had already started doing this thing. Like the Moonlighters, the whole idea was that we were a side project. We were moonlighting. And well, maybe that's your next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, but let me ask you first, what happened to that first record? It was never allowed to come out. Uh, we, we sold, like, do you have a copy of it? I do. Man, it's great. I'll hook you up with it. I mean, uh, we sold a little. I mean, we cut. That band was so ready to go. I think we cut 39 songs in three days, but we ended up doing like a 10-song little you know record that we sold for five bucks out of the back of our van, but it never had a barcode. It was never on iTunes. We were never allowed to really officially release it. Um, so when we made our record on uh, Music Road Records here in town, we were so chomping at the bit that we cut the entire thing live. Uh, no overdubs. 
we got uh, Ken Coomer from Wilco to come down and play record, uh, drums on it. And we had Earl Poolball playing piano and uh, our dear friend Louis Myers playing steel. But all the solos, all the vocals, everything was like, we were so overdue for a record. We were like, let's just get this done. <laughs> I think we cut, again, we cut with like 30 some songs in three days. And, uh, you know, it's a good record. It's called the Cedar Creek Sessions. That one's out there on iTunes if you ever want to check out some stone hunting. Yeah, definitely. I actually uh, just happened to meet um, Nick over the weekend. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, I met him for the first time. Right on. Yeah, and then I started piecing it together. Yeah, he's a dear friend. Um, you know this. I'm a big, big fan of the Moonlighters. Thank you. And and one of the many things I like I like of the band, about the band is that all four of you sing and yeah. sing well. And I feel like it adds just so much depth and the harmonies. And, and I think it's unique. And I think it's one of the things that really I really enjoy about the band. You mentioned... That when you one of the reasons your brother started playing with you or let you play with him despite being a kid was that you could sing in tune. Were you singing, learning to sing and play guitar at the same time? I started singing before I played guitar. Oh wow! Yeah, I was singing in bands when I was eight or nine years old. Uh, I didn't start playing guitar until I was about thirteen. I was a drummer. I, I started. I, I got lucky enough. Uh, I was I was studying with a, a university professor as a drummer, and so I played drums in all the way through high school and orchestra and stage band and concert band and all that stuff. Oh, wow. I'm still a pretty good drummer. But as I mentioned before, my friend Jason Sutter was there. <laughs> I mean, and Jason's just, you know, look him up. I mean, he's, 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 a, he's really one of the best drummers on planet Earth. And so there was no need for, for me to be playing drums. I needed to find something else. So actually, a lot of times when he and I were gigging when we were kids, I was playing bass. Mm-hmm. And he, I, I, he and I, in later life, were the original rhythm section for the pretty big rock uh, musical called Rock of Ages. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we were the original bass and drums for Rock of Ages as well because we're a really good rhythm section. He always used to tell me he thought I should be a bass player instead of a guitar player, but but you don't get to make all the funny faces and wiggle (laughs) around as a bass player. Oh, man. You know, it's funny. I've I've learned of so many guitar players that started out as drummers. Mm -hmm. Joe Satriani. Oh, really? David Grissom. Oh, man. I don't know. Like at least half a dozen more. There's something about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that they all feed into each other. I mean, I, I, when I got to be, <clears throat> I played bass in a band in Seattle called Shuggy. That was a really good band. And I, I, I lied to get into the band because I wanted to be with these guys. And I said, oh, I'm a bass player. And I was a pretty terrible bass player. And people would come up to me afterwards and say, oh, man, you're a guitar player, aren't you? I didn't realize they weren't complimenting me. But once I learned to be a better bass player, I found it made my acoustic guitar playing better. Or like, you know, the more I played drums, the, the better I settled in with grooves on as a bass. Like they all... They're all simpatico. Like, and the more you put effort into every different instrument, you kind of learn their jobs in the band a little bit yeah. better, you know. I want to talk to you about songwriting. It's, it's something I'm really interested in. When you write a song, especially given your background, you know, started, having started singing, playing bass, drums, etc., is it usually the melody that comes to you first, or do you sometimes go off a beat, a riff, a chord, you know, set of chord changes? Um. Yes. Uh, no, for me, uh, it's as elusive as it is, you know, uh, to, to any of us. I, songwriting for me has come in so many different ways. I mean, most of the time, it's finding something chordally that I like. You know, like a, some, like a little series of chords, and I'll and I'll have an idea. Like a melody will start to form over the top of it. I've been writing in reverse recently. <clears throat> Two or three of the last songs I've written, I've been out for a walk or something, and a lyric has come. Like like a whole, and so by the time I'll get home, I'll have a, have a whole page of of a lyric of what I want. I, I've written my last uh, 
I think three songs without a guitar in my hand. Or like I've just kind of had to figure out where the chords are by the time I get home. But I can already hear the entire song in my head. Like I know how I want it to go. I can kind of hear what the chord structure is going to be. And the, the melody is already kind of there. So, And I had a weird phase for a while where I used to dream songs. I would wake up from a dream and I would have a really completed song in a dream. And I could wake up and play that song. Like they were just there kind of waiting for me. So uh, I've, had a, I've had a real uh, sea change in my writing because I had a nasty habit. I know many of us who are journal writers or poets or whatever, you know, our creative outlet. Oftentimes that moment of inspiration comes from when you're down. And it's really, you know, that's a, it's a cathartic and, and therapeutic way to kind of express sadness, you know. And, and so a lot of my songs had a, could, could be pretty bummery. Uh, and that's cool. I mean, I was able to work a lot of stuff out, and it's lovely that I don't have to live with that pain of some of those older songs. But Chris Beale from the Moonlighters challenged me recently because I'm pretty happy right now. And he was like, well, dude, write happy songs. And I had never even thought about writing a happy song. And uh, it's been really fun to find a way, uh, as an example, that something about a girl from Texas song. I mean, I know who it's about, and anybody who knows me knows who it is. But it could also be for any guy about his gal from Texas. You know, right. trying to write songs that are universal, that can be, you know, those are the best ones, I think, that anybody can grab as their own. You know, and that's, I've been trying to be a little more conscious about it. Because it's easy to write lyrics that are very insular that are you know you understand them but no listener will ever have an, any idea of what it is you're on about i think the best songs are ones that allow people to wear it as their own little coat and like have it be their own experience and that's a it's another skill to try and write those kind of uh third person songs you know i've spoken with people who write bits and pieces mm -hmm. catalog them and piece them together uh, later on others aim to complete a song anytime they start working on an idea what do you typically do? Or do you do both? I'm a terrible I'm, I have no revisional skills. I, I wish that I did. I remember hearing Kristen Hirsch from The Throwing Muses uh, compare songwriting to birth. Uh, it, it either arrives fully formed or it's kind of a stillbirth for me. Um, they they kind of got to be done. And for me, the litmus test with, with a song, because some of them come out and they're just... They're just not as good, you know? And uh, for me, the litmus test is when I first come up with an idea is if I'm still singing it in my head the next day or like the next two days, I'm if still If you forget going, it, it wasn't good enough. Yeah, yep. If they're not imprinting on me, then maybe there's not enough there. But I've got, I've got some like older songs that uh, were so close. Like, you know, like I love the music of, but then there's a chorus that just doesn't say what I needed to say. I have no ability to go back and try and rewrite a lyric on them. I just, I once it's down, it's like for me, I can't erase it and start again. I wish, I wish that I could because I, I think I've got some songs in my past that would, that were musically credible, yeah. but they're just not saying anything I want to say anymore. But I, there's something, I mean, there's write new ones. <clears throat> Neil Young, who's always been a big muse to me, has a, has a great attitude about writing where he's like, he looks at them as black and white photographs. It's like, take another one, take another picture. You know, don't be precious about it. Make art and move on, you know? And, and there's something kind of great about that. I've heard people say that repetition is key mm -hmm. and that you need to be willing to write and to finish songs and be okay with the fact that they're not all going to be good, not all going to be great for sure, mm -hmm. and that that repetition is key to becoming a better songwriter, or at least it gives you a better, it improves the odds of you writing a good one if you're writing many. Do you believe that? I have mixed feelings on that. I think that it is like any other muscle. I think you have to, you have to practice to be creative. You got to continually write things down. You got to continually try and get things, but I'm not 
impressed with the formula writing that goes on in places like Nashville, or it's like they're meeting at nine o'clock in the morning to churn out. I mean, I get it. I get it that it's a craft, but after a while, that craft can really be heartless. And, uh, and I think that some of the people who get too wrapped up in the, the, the crafting and songwriting, they start to become very formulaic and they start to have like, they get narrowed in by their own rules of what a, what a song is supposed to be. And, uh, that, I, I still think it. I still think in the end, yes, you know, I think it's important to to practice, and I do think it's important to try and write as many things as you can. But it's got to come from a moment of genuine inspiration. I think if you're not if you're not saying something that's true, I think an audience can tell it and will call bullshit. And I think you can get away with saying a lot of different things if you get up on stage and you're telling the truth. I think people can tell. And, and they'll give you a lot more leeway if you're getting up and trying to just pull the wool over people's eyes or saying what you think you're supposed to say and that kind of stuff. You know, so I think that the kernel of it has got to come from someplace that's honest. I was talking to a friend some time ago about how bands like The Police, Guns N' Roses, uh, I mean, you name really any big band, most of their good work tended to happen early on. It's really true. And... If maybe it was just a function of of you know being fully focused on it and that really being the only thing you, maybe not the only thing but the most important thing in your life yeah the struggles that you were facing um, maybe they're more fertile like those minds at that age but what what do you attribute that to oh I think you hit a lot of those things I mean when uh, <clears throat> I definitely saw it with Jiggle and Lance I mean <clears throat> when we were kids we blocked out everything in our lives and we were so focused on the music that like if any one guy wanted to like have a date with his girlfriend when we had a gig. I was like, no, no, the <laughs> band was first and foremost I, I, every minute. I mean, and we were willing to sacrifice anything for the success of the group. And I think once you start to see some success, it allows you to have a home and a family or girlfriends or recreational drug habits or whatever it is that people start to, uh, you know, you, you also start to, you've put in so much time with those people. Cause that's, that's one of the things that, that most people who haven't experienced being in a band will never understand. You really get, live all over each other, you know, especially in the early days of being in a band, you know, you're just, you can't get away from each other, you know? And so I think that groups, when they've started to see some success, they, they enjoy the space. So they're not, you know, that coming together almost becomes work again. The group can become their job instead of their passion. And, and that, you know, that changes things, you know, I, that's, and I, I really see it now because in since really, I think since like the digital turnover in music, you just don't see a lot of groups that have any longevity. You know, you might have a hit or a hit record, but good luck on your next one. And I really tip my hats to, to like, I mean, I'm, I've been friends with the guys in the Counting Crows for since they started. Oh, wow. And I mean, they're one of the few bands I know that it, they're still doing it and they're still drawing crowds and they're still, and I still like their new music too. And it's like, They've continued to find a way to make it fun, you know, to be vibrant. I, the Black Crows, too, for me, even though I don't even think those guys liked each other very much, <laughs> I thought they continued to make really, really good records. And they made a lot of them, thank God. You mentioned the digital um, revolution or apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, depending on how you look at it. Besides performing live, many musicians now will, you know, do product demos, give lessons, mm -hmm. uh, do session work. I mean, yeah. you just kind of find different things to do. Professionally speaking, what does a typical month look like for you? Is it all Moonlighters all the time? Well, I've actually started to do a lot more solo stuff, and it's it's not glamorous. I've already done two this week where I'm out, you know, I'm playing in little restaurants and bars or I'm at the airport next Monday. I'm out singing songs, and I'm mixing in my songs with old Merle Haggard tunes or, you know, REM songs or whatever I feel like singing. 
it's it's definitely doubled my income. I didn't. I, I used to not feel confident that I had enough to do because I mean it's hard to go out and cover three four hours. Uh, um, you know, that's a lot of material. But I've grown a book, and so I mean, like this week, I have eight gigs in seven days. And you're yeah. doing this. Yep. Uh, I got to give a lot of credit to Lonnie Trevino from the Moonlighters. He is a bulldog, and uh, and he keeps us working. It's gotten to the point where we have to be real uh, careful with our holidays and stuff because uh, it means that the other dudes are losing money. You know, we work that much. You know, we have to be selective of when we're taking time off. But that was the goal. That was the goal when I moved to Texas was to, to be a working musician. I had a, a previous guest tell me that the way he saw it, he performed, he played music for free. He was paid to slog through long road trips in a van. Yeah. I had another guest tell me that he actually preferred to be on the road and that he actually got antsy and he really enjoyed the camaraderie and just being out and, and, and traveling. Where are you now in terms of being on the road? I miss the travel. I really do. Because, I mean, I, I got to do a lot of that. And I was lucky enough that I was doing a lot of international travel. And that's thrilling. I mean, it's an, it's an education if you allow it to be. You know, because I, I was fortunate my brother and I uh, would get up and, you know, we would have hit a great cafe, a cool museum, a guitar store, a thrift store, and all this before soundcheck. You know? uh, we really dug in, got to explore the world a lot. We travel, but we really only travel in Texas. And I love Texas, and I love seeing all of Texas, but we're just getting ready next month to do our first run out of the state of Texas. And I'm excited. I really, And I would love to get this group over to Europe, too, because I know that we would just knock people out. I, you know, I just feel like there's something uh, quintessentially American about the, the Moonlighters, too, that would play. I mean, I, I've had in, plenty of experiences to play music over there. I did a thing a few years back where I got to go to Poland, and I uh, uh, was with this guy named uh, Mitek. He's kind of the Peter Gabriel of Poland, and he's, only, he's, like, he's been a star for generations, and he's only ever done Polish-language records. And so a woman, a wonderful musician and producer I know named Wendy Waldman, had produced his latest record, and they had this idea of an English-language record. And her vision was a half-Polish and half-American band. And so I got to go over and be part of this. The drummer and I were the two Americans. And it was intimidating. I mean, we were, you know, playing these beautiful, you know, the nicest venues in the city. And these musicians I was on stage with were like trained monsters. I mean, one dude had actually played with Peter Gabriel. Another guy, you know, another guy had played with like Pat Metheny. I mean, these guys were, you know, at another level of musicianship than me, or so I thought. I'd play some kind of country or blues lick, and they'd just drop. They'd be like, <laughs> what was that? And it's like, they want what we have. There's a thing that is like, that's just part of what it is to be an American musician that the rest of the world is aching for, you know? And I really feel like the sound, that the, the mix of soul and blues and funk and country, all the different flavors that the Moonlighters bring authentically are all those little things that they can't quite get because they're not American. You know, it's like there's just something in, in, in the soil here that it, that's our sound. And I think that the, what the Moonlighters have created is a really good fusion of all those different flavors that are American music. I've seen you perform a few times now, and each time it's abundantly clear that you're enjoying yourself. That's mm. great. Ray Wiley Hubbard told me that it doesn't matter how many people are in the crowd— that as long as, it, as his guitar sounds good, he can have a good show. What sort of obstacles or situations make it difficult for you to enjoy a show? You just, I mean, you, you already kind of said it. I mean, I've seen your collection. I know you know good tone. That for me is kind of the definition of good tone is the sound that inspires you to play beyond yourself. And so I'm always trying to set myself up at the beginning of a gig with the best possible sound that I can have. 
when there are demons in your pedal board and you can't figure it out, when you've got an amp that's not running quite right. I mean, all, thankfully, my guitars all do what they're supposed to do, but uh, that it can knock me off my game. I mean, I, I, I had a gig a while ago that Chris keeps laughing about. Um, I broke my high E string in the second song of a set. I played the whole gig with a five-string guitar, and I didn't miss a note. Like, I just figured it out, and it became a fun challenge. So I can handle it on the guitar side, but, yeah, I can get pretty down. Like, I, I used to do a lot of fly-in gigs where you didn't know what the back line was going to be. And it's like, it just it feels like I'm compromising my contribution, and I want my contribution to be strong. That's why guys like you and I give a shit about gear. I mean, it does make a difference. And great gear can't make a crappy player better, but crappy gear can bring a great player down. You can figure out how to get through it. It doesn't take I'm, – I'm not a big – picky guy about monitors i'm not picky about stage plots i mean i've played everything but when my rig starts to fail me that can knock me a little sideways i've spent too much time and effort trying to make it right you're a gearhead we've talked a little about your amp collection yeah. and all your guitars every time i've seen you perform you've been playing the same guitar that 335 oh, yeah. yeah what makes that guitar so special or what makes any guitar special to you that one well i don't know i've had a lot of guitars that have come through and been my number one in a very obvious way, the pickups have got to be balanced. You know, I've got to be able to get good sounds out of all the different positions on my toggle switch. I don't, like, I've tried having a one pickup guitar. I need more range for this band. So that's a big part of it. It's got to play in tune. You know, I need it to be intonated right up and down. I guess maybe to show an example of one that didn't work for me, I found a beautiful 66 Burgundy Mist Trini Lopez that had belonged to uh, the legendary country singer uh charlie pride and it looked like the coolest guitar you've you know you've ever seen but there was so much finish on it that the sound was kind of stuck in the guitar like so and you could hear it when you strummed it like before you even plugged it in it was just kind of plunk it just was this dead sound so i find when i pick up gibson's or fenders or whatever i want to hear what they sound like before i even plug them in if they've got a resonance and if they've got some life in them those generally are going to translate because like, I want them to be able to, to breathe a little, if that right. makes any sense. Of course. So yeah, I guess that, that 335 is the perfect balance of that. Like at a, it's enough output without feeding back too much. And it's, it's a hollow body, but it's got the center block. So it doesn't feed back. And it's kind of a perfect combination in a big speed. Do you tinker much in the studio or do you find something that works and then you focus on performance and the songs? I bring an assortment of stuff in the studio. I mean, I bring like an assortment of amps and guitars but I really try, I want my performance on a song to be the, the same track from the beginning to the end. I, and it's kind of grown out of, I don't know, uh, I've got minimal engineering skills, and I don't know how to uh, overdub. <laughs> so on any of my home demos, if I make a mistake, I just have to play the whole track again. <laughs> so I've gotten, I know that like one of the fringe benefits of this digital world is you can overdub. But for me, it's like, I want a performance. Uh, and so I really go for one track all the way through. You recorded your first album in 88, 89? Yes. So you recorded to tape. Yep, all tape, yep. Do you feel there's a big difference Not nowadays? Anymore. I really don't. I mean, and I want to. I yeah. want to be a purist and feel like, you know, that it doesn't sound. It's the way they've gotten the, the interfaces now. They're so much smarter, that, you know, as far as like the preamps and the plugins. And, you know, I, I noticed you had a United is it Universal Audio. Yeah, the Apollo. I mean, come on, They're, that they, you can make you can make records for that. You really can, it, and it doesn't sound. I even think the plugins that they're making. I mean, I, I'm an amp purist. I've heard their Marshall stuff, and I've heard their their Tweed Deluxe. 
I can make records with that and, and be happy with them. It's, it's frustrating to me because I want to plug in amps and get shocks and have tubes <laughs> fail and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, the, it really has come to the point where it's not like it's a, a compromise. I think you can find inspiration in those tones. Yeah. I never felt like I could mic a guitar properly and make it sound the way I wanted it to sound. And what I ended up doing is selling a bunch of mics and stuff because I try to make it work in my closet. Oh, yeah. And it sounded like a closet. So yeah. then I started putting in some, you know, sound-absorbing material, but it was eating up all the high end. So yeah, then it works. Yeah, so then sure. I put some bass traps, and then right. it just wasn't working. And then I ended up – have you ever heard of the Sur Reactive Load? It's a, it's a yes, load box, basically. And you're able to use your amp head, and you still mm-hmm. use your amp. Except you're not hooking up, hooking it up to a cabinet. You're going to that box, and then from that box to your interface, and then you use an impulse response. Yep. That was captured using an actual, you know, four by twelve with yeah. green bags or whatever yep. it is, and it sounds great. That's I've been, you know. Um, do you see the demos that are out there by Pete Thorn? Thorn. Yeah, he was he on the was, show. We talked about it, dude. That guy. First of all, he was the guitar player in the Chris Cornell band when my friend Jason Sutter was was the drummer. They did yeah. about three and a half years together. That guy is a kind of a genius. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, but I really listen to his, because you know, I'm, I'm watching every little demo thing. I think his knowledge and his, his demo uh, demos that are out there are the best in the business. And he's the first guy I really heard using that stuff where it's like, okay, that's how I want my guitar to sound like. You know, I used to kill myself because I, I had a Marshall half stack when I was little, like a real one. I had a 69, 50 watt. And I would stand in the, in the studio room you know, on the other side of the glass and just be blowing my head off with volume. And I'd come back into the control room and it sounded like a mosquito. Right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's, that's when, I got, when I got my little Tweed Deluxe. I was like, oh, okay. It doesn't need to be loud. It just needs to be that. I really enjoy listening to you play. Well, thank you. I think you're uh, playing as tasteful, as creative. You have a unique voice. I think if I played as well as you do, I'd be tempted to never learn anything new. <laughs> do you ever sit down and like try to like push yourself to learn something different, or are you refining what you do mostly? No, I, I, I'm always trying to learn. Uh, it's funny. We, I see the gaping holes in my playing. You know, when I hear guys who've got jazz chops and Western swing stuff and uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, I ache for it because I'm self-taught and there are times that there are, there are limits to like, because I don't really understand theory. And I, my ears do. But like you know, I don't read or write music, and so sometimes I feel like I'm a little limited. I feel like uh, I'm still playing in black and white instead of using all the colors that are available. But I I do. I mean, I watch I watch little videos like we all do, and one of the things I really miss here. I mean, I, pretty much every phase of my life, I've always had a friend who is maybe a little bit better than me, who I've gotten to sit around with and be like, mm, man, how'd you do that? And, you know, and it challenged me. And uh, I don't really have that guitar playing buddy here in town. I've invited a lot of people like, hey, man, let, let's sit around and play guitars. And because to me, it's a camaraderie and it's music is not a competition. Music is something to share. And I think I've bumped into people who feel like I'm trying to be competitive with them or I'm trying to steal something from them. And uh, I, I really miss that. I miss having a friend who, you know, is maybe maybe just a little bit better than me, you know, because like I had that with Josh Z. And now it's really fun how much Chris Beal is sneaking up on me. Because when Chris joined the band, he was like, oh, humble singer-songwriter guy. He's playing so much guitar right now. Everybody's noticing it. And I, and I hope that maybe a little bit is, is uh, me washing off on him. But I also think he's just realizing that there's a space for him because he has really jumped up. And I, I'm inspired by him. I hear, like, you know, there's, there's certain nights where I'm just like, whoa, he took me to town all night long, you know, which is great. <laughs> it keeps you humble and it keeps you hungry. 
And uh, that's all you can really be because you're never there, especially living in a town like this. You know, you go out and you see Red Volker or you go out and you see, you know, man, have you heard Dave Schur? Have you seen? Oh, my Lord. I heard this kid on the radio live from Gueros the other day, and I I just couldn't guess who it would be. And uh, I finally listened to the end of the broadcast, and it was him. He's doing it all through a little Princeton with a Strat. And uh, really one of the most tasteful, I mean, this guy can just, he's bottomless. And he's a younger dude. I think he's a Berkeley grad, but who's from here? Listen to him. You know, so I mean, it's like anytime you start to think you're a little hot shit in this town, <laughs> it, it shows you that you're not, which is great. It's interesting to me that you mentioned that you didn't really study theory. I don't really know what I'm doing. Uh, I don't know how to tell you what I'm doing. That's why I'm a pretty terrible guitar teacher. I wanted to be, <laughs> I wanted to teach people, kind of, but like, I know how I do what I do. It's almost more like uh, I know notes that are that are going to create colors and moods, but I don't really know what it is. I was like, well, I like to throw in that flat third here. Like, there's no name for it, and I, I wish that I had it. There are times that I wish that I knew how to speak the language a little bit better, but I do know how to invoke it. I know how to follow changes. You know, I, I once you get past a certain level of sophistication, I'm a little lost, but I do know how. I think some of that came from the, like my earliest band, Jigolo Ants. That was the first time I was ever allowed to, uh, to play lead guitar. And it was very tight little pop structures. And I, I'd get my 8 to 16 bars, but it had to be something that added to the song. So my early guys were, I loved uh, James Honeyman Scott from The Pretenders, uh, Johnny Marr. I loved these dudes who were, yes, it was a solo but it's part of the song. It didn't detract from, like, I used to watch all those heavy metal videos in the 80s and stuff, and I'd suffer through the song to watch some guy wank, you know? And <laughs> But it was like, it had nothing to do with the rest of the song. So I was like, well, how do you integrate guitar into a song so that it, I think the best solo kind of lifts into the next part of the song. And, 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 and you know, it's something maybe you can even sing back. And you think about, I mean, George Harrison's the perfect, perfect one, like the solo from a song like Something. If you're going to cover something, you kind of have to play that solo. He's playing on an integral melody that is, you could be no other way, you know? I feel very, very strongly that one of the best guitar players at doing just that is Mike Campbell. Oh, he's, he's, he's the, the litmus test. Like he, he really I, is. I feel he epitomizes everything you just said. I absolutely agree. And I just went to see him play recently, and he's better than ever. He never plays a, a distasteful note and he just plays for the song and i think that's the most important part of being a guitar player you know i mean i had to kind of when i came into writing it's funny for me because as a singer songwriter i don't write songs with guitar solos in mind as a guitar player that that's the thing i always think about it's like you are here to accentuate and you know embellish without stepping on the song that's the most important thing i've taken lessons from mike campbell since i was a little kid because not only does he a quintessential side guitar player. He's also had exquisite taste in guitars and gear. So like anything he plays, like there's a file in my mind of every guitar. He's the only dude I ever know who made an Ibanez Iceman look cool. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny you mention that because I don't know if you're familiar or if you've heard of uh, J.D. Simo. The reason I bring him up is that he likes playing a single guitar Mm. all night long and doesn't like switching, which is the, the polar opposite of Mike Campbell, who at times switches guitars Every during song. The, during yeah. the song, yeah. right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering, how do you feel about that? Because JD's philosophy is that he bonds more so with his instrument, that he likes having a single instrument, whereas Mike's philosophy is, 
you know, they're just different colors in, in this palette and yeah. different song, different instruments fit different songs. I, I absolutely agree with that. And if I had a roadie and the circumstance to play different songs for different guitars for different songs, I yeah. absolutely would because <laughs> I love to do that stuff. Like one, one of my favorite things in the world when we're in the studio is to figure out like what's the right voice when you're playing live and you're like me in, in a band that's, you know, just slugging it out. You don't have that luxury, but I, I love it. I love hearing the different textures and different tones of different guitars. I mean, I, I think that's a joy, you know, but it's a, it's one of those things that those guys have been rock stars since 1978, you know. Uh, the Conning Crows are that way, too. And they had, we just lost him this last year, our dear friend Billy, who was the best guitar tech under the sun, who had worked for Dylan and R.E.M. And his passion was, was guitars. So these guys, they knew that every time they got handed that next guitar, it was expertly put together i mean he you know he had their library of guitars you know like their whole vault everything was set up and ready to go and i would flip out to be able to like switch to my gretch for this song and a telly for this song and you know know that they're all you know have somebody hand it to you capoed and in a special tuning and in tune like oh man that's the dream you know (laughs) last question for you you've lived in and played music professionally in many cities i have Uh, you've been in austin for a while now this is a broad question but what is your assessment of the state of live music in the city that bills itself as the live music capital of the world. I am very conscious of the fact that I got lucky twice in this town. Moving here with Stone Honey and getting the advantage that we did of the good folks at Threadgills, that allowed us to skip a lot of steps. You know, So we were instantly, we had a fan base and a place to play. I don't think every band gets that. I, I got to step in at an advantage from the get-go. And then meeting Lonnie Trevino and Phil Bass, those guys were already respected, hardworking, tenured members of this community. It allowed me to kind of jump some steps. I can't really imagine what it would have been like if I had just kind of moved here on my own and was trying to do the same things because it's hard. I mean, I can see that it's hard. You know, we we really don't play in Austin very often. Um, We only play in Austin maybe once or twice a month. And... Thankfully, you know, because a lovely fan base, we can fill up a Saxon pub or we can fill up, but we haven't been able to, you know, we're dying to, to move on to that next level to be able to get a blues on the green or a, it's very, um, every town is very trendy. You know, every town has its own little tastemakers and every town has like the, the gatekeepers. You know, there are certain folks at, let's say KUT and at the Chronicle and stuff like that, that if they give you the nod, you're going to be in, but it's really challenging. I also am conscious of the fact that I'm 47 years old. They're not looking for the new 47-year-old. They're looking <laughs> for the new 22-year-old, and I get that. Music has got to be about the new generation, and, and I respect that. And you know, I try to remember, sometimes it's easy to fall into sour grapes, like, well, we're better than that. But it's like, yeah, you're, yeah but you're, you know, you're also in another generation. I do think that it's still, I still, I think it's a really vibrant and exciting community. And I see so much good live music going on all over the town. Sometimes, again, just to take it back to my personal experience, I feel like we're a little stuck between generations because we're not young enough to be hip East Side kids and we're not yet the old guard. So it's like, well, where do we exist in this world? You know, but we just keep doing what we do. And, and I love what we're doing. I love that we're, you know, I, I wish that a couple of the right tastemaker folks who would kind of wave their magic wand and say, welcome, and we could get some of those cooler gigs. But, you know, that's what persistence is all about. You just keep banging away. Having lived in a lot of different music communities, I really do think that the big thing that makes Austin difference are the audiences. People just go out to see music here. 
You know, it's it's something that's culturally still part of the landscape, and I I see that fading away in other places. They just can't be bothered. A lot. I mean, L.A. Their idea of a local group is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, what I mean, like there was no <laughs> support for local music there. It was really really hard uh, because there's just too many other things to do and too many other distractions. I see people in Austin who go out every night of the week, and they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and they're out paying the cover, tipping the bands, supporting live music. And that that's what makes Austin Austin, I think. Phil, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I've been so glad we've been looking forward to doing this for a while, Marco. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.